tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Elephants and tigers in Piccadilly Circus. Hoes spitting out pieces of broken luck. Jack Knife Barber. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Tonight, we have something extremely special for our dear listeners. This is going to be the first podcast we've ever done with all of us standing on one leg. Um, <laughs> We're very excited about Indifference. that. And I probably have given away that tonight we are going to be talking about Jethro Toll and Aqualung. Uh, this album came out in 1971. It is their fourth album, and it features uh, several hits. And we'll get to those later. Now, if you are a regular listener to this audience i mean to this program you should be able to pick out who picked this album let me give you a hint this is a progressive rock band well also sort of only white people listen to this band. Uh, tony yeah doug why did you choose this monster album? Well, I chose it for three reasons. The first is a fairly superficial one, which is I felt I was getting a little typecast as the power pop guy, and I wanted to spread my wings a little bit, or, as you said, stand on one leg <laughs> like a crane, uh, and pick an album that uh, has a very long history for me, which I'll get to in a second. That's really my third reason. My second reason is I thought, this conversation in terms of the themes of this album would be really kind of in intriguing. I'm in particular interested to hear your take on stuff, Doug. Um, JM's as well, but I, I think there's probably things that the themes of these songs scratch a little deeper for you, I guess. Um, I will just ask our audience to open up a bag of pork rinds, <laughs> eat the whole bag without water, <laughs> and... You'll be able to understand some of the feelings I had as um, I went through this. So the, the third and main reason is, as I said, this has has a bit of history for me. So I, I used to live off and on with my grandparents. And one 
day, I was probably 12 or 13, I, I'm in my uncle's closet, he's not living there anymore, and there's a stack of albums up on the on this shelf, and I pull them down, and there's 78s, um, there's uh, the original, and I kid you not, the original VJ label introducing the Beatles, wow. and the original Meet the Beatles, neither one of them have the covers, they're just scratched up pieces of junk album, but they're the originals, because my mom had those. <laughs> And then uh, a couple of other odd things, and, and a couple of 45s. There's a 45 of something, I think a 45 of, uh, of a Who song. And then this album I'd never seen before, Aqualung by Jethro Tull. With a very compelling cover. It is a very Scared compelling. the hell out of me as yeah. a 13-year-old. So it's like the, the Wicked kind of Witch guy. of the East were a, a man. Yeah. So well, I put, When you're a kid and you are scared of something in your bedroom? Yeah. It's that cover. Yeah, so I pull I pull this album off, I look at it, and, and it's it's intriguing but creepy at the same time. I flip it over and there's this this bit of verse on the back about man creating God in his own image. And as a thirteen year old Catholic schoolboy, that seemed really forbidden to me to be having this in my hands. Um and then I put the album on. It was scratched to hell, but enough for me to listen to it and the first notes of Aqualung got they were they were grungy and the album the whole album just feels felt dirty to me and then i started listening to the lyrics eyeing little girls with bad intent i was like this is not something a 13 year old catholic boy should be listening talking to. about snot going down but, his nose but i couldn't help it and so i listened to it non-stop it was the it was compelling and forbidden and taboo and all this stuff all at the same time and it stuck with me tony yes sir it's I think our audience knows that you are uh, a follower of the Church of Rome. <laughs> a papist, if you will. A papist, yeah. I was trying to use a nice... a nice. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll wear the papist tag. I'm fine with that. <laughs> and the... Uh, did you go to confession after listening to this album? Uh, no. Have you confessed since? No. I'm I'm a I, you know I'm a traditional Catholic when it comes to confession. It's like eh. <laughs> I stole a quarter from my mom's purse twenty years. Ago. Oh, I remember standing in front because we had to go every Wednesday. I remember standing in front of the confessional trying to make stuff up because I felt like I had to say stuff to the priest. <laughs> but you didn't sin, or you didn't want to talk about your actual sin. Well, there's certain things that you don't want to talk to anybody about at that age. But yeah, I would make stuff up because yeah. I felt like I needed to say something, including Jethro Tull. Well, I think I could keep a cardinal, a, a, a whole, a whole uh, college of cardinals busy for <laughs> hours well, and hours. It, with my confession. Here's what's a, a little bit, just a brief side journey. My so I'm later on. I'm 17 years old. I'm I, or 16. I get my first car. I buy it from my uncle. It's a 1977 Dove Gray Pinto station wagon. Uh, your uncle hated your guts. Yes. JM and I both went on a wonderful uh, fishing trip with uh, one of his ex-girlfriends and her father. <laughs> uh, the name of the boat was the True Verdict, and uh, the funds for that boat came from Pinto lawsuits. Okay. Well, this was a station wagon, not a hatchback, so it didn't have that problem. But my uncle told me it had an 8-track player in it. It was a 1977 Pinto station, an 8-track player in it. And he sold me the car with everything in it. And in it were two 8-track cassettes. One was Elton John's Greatest Hits. That was my first album. And the other one was Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull. 
Really don't mind if you sit this one out. My words, but a whisper, deafness, a shout. I may make you feel, but I can't make you think. Your sperm's in the gutter, your love's in the sink. So you ride sails over the field. Oh. And I listen to it constantly. So you got uh, 12 songs on the Elton John album and one and one 40 minute song. <laughs> yeah, I thought about choosing Thick as a Brick for this, but it'd be you get a little old talking about the same song for you know however long we do, Thank but you. Um, But yeah, so there's a history of this band. I've seen them live. I own most of their discography. Um, You know, like everything, I try to be a completist. There's holes in my... I kind of lost interest after a little while. But um, yeah, I I just feel like this is something that would be interesting to talk about. And I'm passionate enough, I think, that I can... About it, that I can make it somewhat listenable. So this is a strange band. Yes. It is not widely popular and at the same time they have 11 gold albums <laughs> which is enormous enormous yeah five platinum albums 60 million albums sold worldwide they top they're the- one of the world's most commercially successful uh, bands and they have a they have a regular existence on FM radio on the classic rock deal but there are so many people if you ask them their favorite Jeff or Toll song they might be able to name one or two but they might not be able to name any and they certainly couldn't go on past three I guess I'm not a normal person <laughs> we, we've been through that you, already you neglected to mention they had two number one top chart Tumblr, well, tell us about that because that, that's true. Well, and that's they, pretty uh, remarkable. So the album after this one, "Thick as a Brick," one long forty-minute song. That album chopped the tarts or top, top, chopped the tarts. Chopped the tarts. Yeah, uh, speaking of those, no, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> chopped. The, this top, is a family <laughs> program. Chopped the charts uh, at number one, and then the album that followed that, "A Passion Play," which is a continuation of some of the themes on this album. The silver cord lies on the ground And so I'm dead The young man said Over the hill not a wish away Also hit number one And then in 1989 they also won the very first Grammy, we'll get into that later, but the very first Grammy for hard rock heavy metal albums in 1989. They won a Grammy for that. So yeah, lots of success. One of those bands that people, I think, uh, don't like to admit they like. Um, I think there was a little bit of that with uh, at least one of us tonight. (laughs) I was surprised that he actually found this enjoyable. Um, But... uh, yeah, I you know everybody. I think you're right. People would find it hard to name songs, but everybody knows the songs. Yeah, I think. I mean, kind of Tony. You're. I think I discovered this album in eighth grade. It was one of those. I think I got it. Um, as I got it as an eight track. I think I got it from my aunt or somebody who didn't know anything about music, but just knew that I liked music and said, 
went to a record store or I guess an, uh, a Hastings at that that back then. Hastings rock. Anyway. I love that record store. <laughs> did it's, they have Hastings in Austin ever? Uh, yeah, they did. Where? Um, it was in well in the mall. In malls. Yeah, it was in the oh, mall. That's, I forgot yeah. about malls. Yeah, and, the, and that was that was always the place. Fact, I, I know. Yeah, that's where I bought. Uh, yeah. Anyways, I think she went to Hastings and got um, the eight track for. Uh, and I was even then I was not totally into eight tracks. I was much more into records. But um, well, it's kind of hard to be into an eight track. Yeah, with yeah. the songs. And yeah, and all that. So, but she got that for me, and I just remember I listened to. I I, I was familiar with Aqualung from FM radio, but I just I remember putting it on and just it, just being bored by it. I mean, I I think I liked Aqualung, but I just remember you. Know, How old like, were you? I guess I was. 13 or 14 my, the same age as i was when i discovered yeah I had completely different reactions to it and then it was but i also got like about that same time i got kansas left overture and, hated and hated that too i mean See, it's like it's one of those things like i should try to like spoiler alert <laughs> tony likes left overture <laughs> i'm like Man, shouldn't i, I like this like or pointing over to I mean, so, and, and i just i never could bring myself to actually like i tried to like yes i tried to like i remember when i heard the term art rock yeah and i thought that meant Okay, you have to like this yeah. stuff because it's art, which mm -hmm. means just because you, I, I always believe I always believe that uh, if I if I didn't like it, but people said it was good, I had to keep plugging away until I understood it. Yeah, and uh, that happened with yes, and that, I can remember Kansas trying so hard to pretend I liked Kansas, and um, <laughs> finally I just remember throwing my hands up in the air, go. I can't stand it. <laughs> and I remember that that album with the Native Americans take over the world. Oh yeah, after there's a bomb or something. Yeah, dust in the wind. No, that's uh, the one after that. So, a, see, so people of the South Wind. I, I no, that, that that album had all these Native Americans sitting around on yeah. the overpass because we blew the world up and they were smart. <laughs> the uh, the term art rock I think was used by a lot of people to try to make. People who liked Prague but didn't want to admit it make it sound snootier. Uh, I never liked that term. I would apply it maybe to certain bands that seemed a little bit more finessed than, say, Toll or Kansas or Yes, um, like Genesis or uh, Gentle Giant, bands like that. Um, uh, Tony, I listen to Doja Cat. Yeah, Doja Cat, okay. Dog. And... Um, I'm not familiar with art rock. Could you go into art rock? <laughs> Tell us what that is. Well, uh, so if we're talking about progressive rock, just in, in general, it's something that's usually very complex, multiple time signatures. The musicians like to show off. There's long solos. There's crazy drumming. A lot of times the musicians are classically trained. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I always, this could be wrong, but in my mind, I always there was an offshoot of that that I called art rock, which was stuff that was a little less pretentious than that, oddly enough. As called art, art rock, rock was less pretentious? Yes, in my mind it is, and more accessible, um, but it was like, like I said, Genesis, a Vandergraaf Generator, uh, Gentle, Gentle Giant, Giant yeah. ba bands that seemed to be a little bit uh, less involved with singing about starships and elves and more involved about <laughs> just kind of making interesting music um, oh, but but i'm confused now because i listen to um harry styles and uh is there so any, my daughter is there anything more pretentious in the world than yes 
No, yes is straight prog. I wouldn't call them art rock. No, I, I don't thought think that so. when I said art rock, I always thought that's, I was talking about yes. Well, that's what I'm saying to you is that was a term that most people used to. I could, I could see like people like Rodius Modius. I mean, I, I could see that word. There's a little bit more experimentation going on. Not so much. Look at our chops. Yeah, oh, but yes, yes is that's what I'm saying. The term art rock was used by critics who liked it but didn't want to say progressive rock they wanted to sound snootier i always and me and my friends who were into Prague always seemed as art rock to be something as an offshoot something different yes would have been straight Prague. art rock was like you could have said some of the stuff that brian eno yeah that's art rock rock, not not straight Prague. okay so this is pissing me off (laughs) i feel like i'm having to start all over because i like Eno, and i thought i hated art rock so (laughs) No, anyway, you brought, you, you're you're can, you're with. Can we talk about this guy, Jeff Bertol? <laughs> yes, this right. guy. This he guy. was he, had, born... he was he was best friends with Pink Floyd. Um, was he, he was, really? No, he was born in. Uh, he was born a long time ago. Um, <laughs> oh, the Jethro Toll, the one the band's named after. He was born in 1674, <laughs> right? And he invented the um, seed drill, seed drill, and the hoe. And, and I'm disappointed to find out that some of my partners here were thinking about something else when I said "ho" in the introduction. But we were talking about the 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 uh, clever Implement. inventor uh, of of those two implements that changed Western civilization. Tony, how did this band decide its name was also Jethro Tull? Well, it was sort of uh, recommended to them because. Um, Without getting into too much detail about the past of the band, they started off as a traditional blues band. Um, it, it's funny; they, uh, these guys were all from Blackpool. Ian Anderson and uh, and the guys who started it: John Evan, uh, Barry Barlow, Jeffrey Hammond, uh, who is on this album as well. But anyway, and this guy named Michael Stevens. They were all blues guys. When Beatlemania is sweeping the nation, these guys were interested in, in American blues. Um, Anyway, they form a band, um, and uh, they get a little bit of, of, you know, whatever, playing around, and they end up adding horns to it. They change the name to the John Evan Band, um, after John Evans, who drops his S because it seems more stage-friendly. And then they later called it to John, I don't know why, but John (laughs) Evans Smash. Had a ton of lineup changes to include future Tully Glenn Cornick, um, after Jeffrey Hammond leaves to go to art school. They end up moving to London. This is a long way to answer your question, but they end up moving to uh, London. For the benefit of the audience, the question was, how did they get yeah. the name Jethro Well, that's what I'm trying to tell you. Very few people realize that that was the actual <laughs> question at this point. They have, lots of cha- they have lots of lineup changes, lots of name changes. When they moved to London, Ian Anderson says they couldn't get second gig, so they had to change their name to get, a, get a, the next gig <laughs> because people wouldn't hire them back, so they constantly change their name. Well, the weird thing that that's happens... That's like me in second dates. The weird thing... <laughs> that happens is a, some producer, local producer, takes an interest in them, wants to bring them into the studio to to record a single, and the producer wanted to call them the Candy Colored Rain, oh. which they hated. The the they wouldn't. There was an offshoot of Chrysalis uh, Records that was a booking agent, and the booking agent at the time said, "Why don't you call yourselves Jethro Tull after the name of the guy who invented the seed drill?" And they're like, oh, "Whatever, sure." <laughs> And so they go into the studio and they record this this single that was actually written by uh, the A side was written by Mick Abrams who was the guitarist at the time and the B side was written by um, and co-written by Ian Anderson and uh, Grant, 
excuse me, and Glenn Cornick called Aeroplane. The funny thing about that single, the very first single released under the name Jethro Toll was mislabeled as Jethro Toe. Yeah. <laughs> there, uh, I could see that turning into their name pretty easily, too. Yeah. <laughs> so I, we have to do something here, I think, to... Um, there, we have some fans who are not over 50 that listen to Post Malone. And... Um, Let's talk about Ian Anderson, because I think when most people say Jethro Tull, they think they're describing Ian Anderson, and Ian Anderson, more than almost any band in the world, is the face and the uh, attention-grabbing uh, attention uh, person in this band. And that has everything to do with his instrument of choice and his stage presence. And what else does he do? Sings. Stands on one leg all the time. Yeah. But he, um, so he picked up the flute late in life. The flute is obviously what we're talking about here. The, Jethro Toll wasn't, was obviously not the first band to have flute in. I mean, we've talked about several bands, right? We talked about one of your favorite bands that had a, a flautist, uh, Doug. That's right. Little Beat. Uh, I think we were talking about Moody Blues. I was, was talking about the Moody Blues. But oh, Little Beat yeah. did have uh, Lowell George playing the flute. And, and uh, Lowell George is also famous uh, for winning the uh, Grammy for the least likely guy to play the flute in the entire world. <laughs> well, and then, uh, of course, Genesis. Peter Gable was a flautist. And then the band we talked about last week, or not the well, we did talk about them in, 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 in uh, around Dave Mason, which was Traffic, also had a, a flute player. So and, you know, at my high school, boys didn't play the flute unless they wanted to. Add no. So one one of the thing one of the things that happens is they get when they move to London and they get Mick Abrams on as guitarist, they get a gig at the Marquee, which is this big time London club, and they're playing around. They're starting to get a following, and uh, the booking agency pulls Ian Anderson aside and kindly says, "You might want to drop that flute." And you might want to let Mick Abrams kind of lead things. You can sing and play the piano in the background, the organ in the background, but we think this is really the best for the band. And, of course, he took that and said, yeah, right, and started doing the goofy, one-legged, bug-eyed routine that gave, basically gave them their visual um, identity. So, Yeah. And if, if, if you say Jethro Tull and they think of something other than Ian Anderson with a flute... Um, Please let us know here at This Is Vinyl Tap because none of us can imagine what the hell they're thinking about. Well, and, and the thing is, like I said, he took it up late in life, so he's self-taught. Well, yeah. I think he was playing live two weeks after he decided he was a flautist. Yeah. yeah. and and But and, it's pretty good. I mean, he got no, Well, his fingering's all wrong, as he yeah. found out later when his daughter picked well, up the instrument. Well, I'm going to step out and, and be the, the jerk because that's kind of... We each have roles here, and that's kind of mine. Uh, I call it his spit pipe. Um I, I think all I hear is. I, I, let me tell you something. I love his flute playing, and I think the reason I love it is because of what he does. He's he does this when he plays the guitar too. He scats, so he's playing the flute and scatting along yeah, at the same time. I watched, yeah. I watched I a classically that. trained uh, flute player watch him scat and play the flute at the same, and he did a lot of. <laughs> and, uh, I love that. She stuff. did mention that she did not care for the. <laughs> She was um, <laughs> impressed by everything else. And she was trying to figure out his fingerings. Yeah, it's all wrong. Yeah, self-taught. Yeah. So, um, anyway. Uh, Let that be a his, lesson. He plays bluesy licks on the flute, which which is weird to begin with. Yeah. And, uh, 
Well, you know why he picked the instrument up, right? Well, because he couldn't be number one guitar player. Well, and and all the bands at the I never time, let that stop me. All the bands at the time were you know had these guitar gods in them. You know, think yeah. about it, Cream and and yeah. uh, Hendrix, and yeah. he's like, what what could set us apart a little bit, right? Yeah. So he ends up playing blues flute. <laughs> well, and and uh, I understand all that, and that's interesting. But uh, his he's not a shabby guitar player by any means. No, he's a great guitar player, and uh, I, I believe he also picked up the saxophone. I guess I haven't heard him play the saxophone, but I well, in the, I, yeah, well, in the later years he played the keyboards as well. Yeah, so. and mandolin. Don't yeah. don't forget the claghorn. Good old fashioned claghorn. You know the, what the I don't clag? Think we can I don't say even know that. what the claghorn you know clag is. Clag. I'm sorry. The claghorn. So when they go into the studio and record their first album, which is called This Was, um, which had Mick Abrams on guitar, Clive Bunker on drums, Glenn Cornick on bass, and Ener Lee vocals, flute, and claghorn, they invented this thing. It's essentially a bamboo flute with a saxophone mouthpiece on one end and a plastic bell of a toy's <laughs> trumpet on the other end. And you can hear it prominently on a song called Dharma for One off of that LP, the Claghorn. It's the only time they really played it, although they played it What's live a clag? from time to time. <laughs> Thank you for asking me that. So uh, uh, it's credited, the name of it is credited, Jeffrey Hammond came up with naming the Claghorn because he had a term for um, excrement called clag. <laughs> And it sounded to him like a bunch of excrement, so he called it the I would like to apologize, like to, apologize to the uh, parents out there who might be doing a carpool right now. As have we to explain. This will come out after school has restarted, and we might even have kids going to a classroom this year, so I apologize so, for that. So what? I think it's interesting because you talked about his guitar playing. Um, I think it's interesting to talk about why it sounds the way it does because it's unique sounding in a lot of ways his acoustic guitar well, it's very yeah it's very light sounding he uses very small guitar i've never seen him like sit there well, with a big giant guild martin's about the size of a ukulele yeah well he his his uh the reason he plays it the way he does is because he was absolutely enamored with this guy named roy harper roy harper was a folky in the late 60s he's still around he's still a going concern i think he's retired but he still plays around um, and he was a folky who had a very unique style. I've been walking all over the place, now I'm walking back again. I've been smiling all over my face, I wonder where the hell I've been. Won't you take me by the hand, divided by my brain? I'm feeling all a Saturday, I'm failing to explain. Uh... He was a darling of a lot of rock musicians at the time. Zeppelin wrote a song, I think, on Zeppelin Hats 3. Hats off to Roy Harper. Hats off to Roy Harper. Uh, 
Um, he uh, was the inspiration for the song. The, the, there's a song called One of These Turns that Pink Floyd did where the, in part of it, the hotel was smashed up. And then if you've seen the movie, The Wall, there's a hotel smashed up. He's the inspiration for that because he was touring with them. And uh, and something happened. Like they couldn't find like a shirt or something on it. And he ripped up the touring van. Like, just had it through a fit. And... He sings the lead on Wish You Were Here. Have a cigar. Yes, have a cigar on Wish You Were Here. He sings the lead on that. So that's Roy Harper. That's not anyone from Pink Floyd singing it. That's Roy Harper. Anyway, hugely influential guy. I highly recommend checking his stuff out because it's fascinating. And he plays the acoustic guitar the way Ian Anderson does, which is this just bizarre sort of intricate. I'm not a musician, so I can't describe it, but it's it's. It's almost like a flat picking style yeah, that is, yeah. but it doesn't sound like anything that comes from Appalachia. It's it's. JM, we have some questions. All righty. Now, Tony has given us a little history, and um, I don't know how many members this band has had. Over thirty. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Can you tell us about the members that are on this album? And can you tell us about the production? Well, I can tell you more about the production than I can about the actual members. One of the guys, uh, was his name? Martin Barr. He's been with them for a, a very long time. He was, um, from what I read, he was very particular about his guitar. So he actually has one of the first people to have specially made guitars for him. Uh, if you actually see him play, you're always wondering what kind of guitar he's playing. Um then you have what is his name Jeffrey Hammond Hammond. That's his stage name. <laughs> stage Jeffrey name. Hammond. Yeah, his but he goes by Hammond Hammond because his mother was a Hammond and his what, dad was a Hammond. Right. And what's interesting about him on this? What's he play? He plays bass. Right. He hadn't played bass in over I think four <laughs> oh, years. Really? Is that right? Yeah, he left the original band to go to art school, and, and then he came they, back when the when the other bassist left. Ian Anderson talked him out of retirement. Yeah. With this in mind, he said, come on, come play for five years. You'll make some dough. We really need you. So he had to relearn the instrument before, as they were recording so, this album. Wait, let me understand. He had options, and he chose <laughs> to play the bass? Yeah, and he's a pretty good bassist, too. Yeah, um, he, plays, yeah, yeah, yeah. he plays bass on Thick as a Brick, which is, yeah. that's not an easy album to play bass on. Yeah. Oh, poor man. Anyway, I'm sorry, Jim. Go ahead. And then I'm not, I know very little about the drummer. He left right after this. This is his last Clive whole Bunker. Album. Yeah, Clive Bunker is his last um, whole album. Which I, I think he just basically he didn't he didn't do so much after that. No. He just kind of he quit because he wanted to be with his family, Aww. which is kind of an unusual thing yeah. for a rock and roll musician to want to well, do. But these guys, are, a drummer. I mean, they're supposed to be. They I, I know. think after the lead guitar player and the lead singer, <laughs> they're the, the the most likely to get uh, yeah. favors. Yeah, from the groupies, and of course, bass players are at the absolute bottom. They're they may be under the they're roadies. crying in their beer. They're yeah. under the roadies. But the album is produced by Ian Anderson and there's another guy, another guy named Terry Ellis. Now Terry Ellis is not he, from what I read, says he really didn't do that much by the way of actually producing the album. But I mean, they had it was Island Records, and they had their own studio and just everybody that was on Island Records would record there people like robert palmer u2 um 
Bob Marley and the Whalers. And, the I, and I believe, I believe Toll, when Toll recorded Aqualung, it was, they were one of the first rock and roll bands right. to use it along with Led Zeppelin. Yeah, at the same time. Zeppelin four in the basement below them. Yeah, and they would sometimes get so loud that they would have to, like, uh, Toll would have to just wait. Yeah. Well, they, 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 Ian playing. Anderson said the studio upstairs was like, it was a converted church, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it's a converted church, and they just kind of sectioned off areas. And, and it didn't sound didn't very sound good. No, and then they, they redid they did a bunch of work to it. No, and they were freezing to death, I believe. Yeah. Well, it's England. You always yeah, freeze to you're death. You're always in freezing England. to death in England. But there's a, the guy that uh, kind of put it all together for him the, was the producer, got co production credit, and his name is Terry Ellis. And the thing that he did. He, he being a rock and roll guy is one of the last things that you would think he's a mathematics and I think physics like master. He was uh, on his way to be a, a, a physicist and a very good one. But he started uh, booking bands for the for the college that he was going to. And he also started writing uh, reviews for the college newspaper. And he was just kind of infatuated with booking bands and so he got kind of a reputation of being a, a, a pretty good manager so he was uh actually met another guy chris uh, so he met another guy by the name of chris white who was much right who was a very much more of a savvy businessman i think he was a little older um and they created uh chrysalis records now the thing that's very interesting about chrysalis records was and i, I just read this they never distributed their own uh, label. They always got made deals with other record companies to distribute their label. So uh, you mentioned earlier about Jethro Tull when they were they were on MGM. Yeah, they that were first that first single Jethro where they Toe when they were released as yeah. Jethro Tull. You know, Terry Ellis is like, man, we just can't. That's that's crap. We got to make these guys sound better. We got to have um, uh, marketing for them. And so they he was, but he the the model was that they could just do whatever they want put the money for the the album and then worry about how it was going to be distributed it, it must have worked because Ian Anderson doesn't seem to me to be somebody who would suffer fools lightly and yeah. they were on this label for a very yeah, long very time. long time and they're known for being very good to their artists they are um they're and, like the Warner Brothers of the UK I yeah guess. i guess they're like the Warner Brothers of the UK um so but there's a lot of bands that or on Chrysalis that they started off in, in England and then they opened, uh, I think Terry Ellis moved to the United States cause he wanted to start signing some bands in the United States. But people that came from that were on Chrysalis with generation X, the original Billy oh, Idol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he was Billy. Well, he had some dumb stupid yeah, at that point before he was Billy Idol. 10 years after. Ah, yeah. Pro call Harum. And then, you know, about them last week. Yeah. So when you start and then they came over to the United States and Blondie was one of their first people that they sold. Um, so they've, they've got a pretty good. They, they're the large, one of the mo most successful independent uh, record companies that's ever existed. Well, they've been good to Toll. That's for yeah. sure. And he's been good to them. Well, and I, <laughs> somebody, and he says that I, I Terry Ellis if tells somebody, you if somebody uh, on that label sold more than he has, I don't know who. It well, is. Terry they, Ellis. They. It's a band, not a him. It's a they. It's not the guy with the plow. No. <laughs> well, Terry um, Ellis says there would be no Chrysalis Records if it weren't Jeff for Toll. Yeah. Well, and and I think it's uh, you did. I, I don't. And I apologize if I just missed it. I don't think you mentioned the keyboardist on this album. Oh yeah, because he was a late addition, wasn't he? He was, and he was somebody who. So 
their important thing happens between their first and second album. Mick Abrams leaves. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Martin Barr joins. The funny thing about Martin Barr was he's a blues guitarist and a blues flautist. So when yeah. Cole was on the scene, he's like, oh my God. <laughs> and so we went to see him and then he was a member of the band, I think, think three weeks later after he saw him the first time. Yeah. So they put out this album, Stand Up, which, you know, um, actually does pretty well. It hits number 20 on the charts. Does he ever get to play the flute? He does. He does. But yeah. they had this single called Buri off of that, which you people, you don't know the name, but I guarantee, guarantee you heard, heard it. a song. It's, a, it's an it's instrumental. A... It's from. It's actually based on a Bach piece. Yes, yes. And I didn't know it was them. I always thought it was somebody like Herbie Mann oh, or no, somebody no, like that. No, that and, was... and then in between that, their second album, the third album, they released the single "Living in the Past." Again, I guarantee you've heard that song. Yeah. Maybe one of Toll's most popular songs. Yeah. Um, the funny thing about Living in the Past was it reached number three on the UK, so that got them a slot on what happened when you hit the top of the charts in or the top of the pops in the UK. You're on top of you the went pops. On top of the pops. <laughs> you imagine sitting there for your nice Sunday dinner and you turn on top of the pops and these reprobates come across the screen. <laughs> You're wondering if his eyeballs are going to come out. Like, <laughs> holy cow. Like shit um, Yeah, exactly. So then yeah. they do, before this album, they do Benefit. And the reason I bring this up is because that's when John Evans was, he was a session player. He wasn't quite a member of the band yet, but he's yeah. a session player yeah. for Benefit. And Benefit, of course, has Teacher on it, which is another song. I guarantee you. you that's the thing about Toll. You may not know the name of these songs. I guarantee you've yeah. heard them. I have a question for Tony. Okay. Have we squeezed enough knowledge out of you to move on to the record? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I hit all the points I thought were important to hit on this. Um, yeah. And we're, we're now going to Aqualung. Aqualung. Why is this album called Aqualung? Just briefly, let's talk about this. This album was considered a concept album. 
It was by everybody but the by everybody <laughs> but Ian Anderson. Writer, yeah. It was considered a prog album by everyone but Ian Anderson. I think he's got a little bit of an issue because he named the first side Aqualung, the second side My God. There's themes running through it. It's a concept album. It may be not tell a story, but there's a concept on both sides of this. So, well, he said that yeah, you know, he got the idea for Aqualung from his wife taking pictures of homeless guys on the Thames. Yeah, for well, the song. she helped him write the song. Well, yeah. she wrote the first four lyrics, the worst part of the song. <laughs> she wrote. Um, Are you saying that women can't write lyrics? Because I find that highly offensive. I think women can I write all great. the women I think in this audience. Lots of women can write lyrics. She's uh, not a good lyricist because all she did was describe what she what she saw. He actually has said, uh, "I would have never come with up with snot as running down his nose." And I believe him. <laughs> I believe him that. too. That's a little. Um, uh, what, what if he's going to divorce her anyway? Oh, yeah, she like get rid a, of the lyrics like a year later, right? I don't think they were married for very long. So here's a question I have for you guys: What is Toll most known for? Like standing on one foot, playing no, no, the no, flute. What, uh, playing the flute. Okay, the Aqualung. Flute. What is their most famous song? Aqualung. Aqualung, my friend. Do you know what's not in this song? The word Aqualung. Word Aqualung. The flute. <laughs> oh, the flute. Oh, that is funny. I, there is I had no. Flute in the song. What the hell? Aqualung's all over the place on this song. Well, that, that proves. Um, yeah, that's true. There's that no flute on it. Let's say that Tony said that. Can you, can you do that? Um, that that uh, helps illustrate a point I have that none of these songs would miss the flute. Oh, I disagree with that 100%. <laughs> okay, I think there's some. I, I'm not a big flute fan, but I, I'm going to agree with Tony. I think there's some stuff he does on here. Um, Oh, but, but what's funny about this is the more that, that so wrong, the more right I see. as we mentioned earlier, they're recording this the same time Zeppelin's recording Zeppelin 4. And they had toured with Zeppelin. They toured the States, I think, with Zeppelin. So they were buddies with them. Jimmy Page comes up while Martin Barr is recording the fantastic solo for this song, by the way. This song has easily the most recognizable mm-hmm. guitar riff of almost any song. And the solo is also very good and very recognizable. Yeah. So Martin Barr's laying it down, and he's having a little bit of trouble with it, and Jimmy Page shows up in the control room and waves at him. And, he, and Martin Barr, in interviews, goes, I'm thinking, I can't wave at him. I can't stop the solo, because if I screw it up, that that's just another chance for Ian to slip in a flute solo and, and axe the guitar solo. So I had to concentrate. So he just, he, he, he you know, mm-hmm. soldiers through and lays down a fantastic solo. Yeah. Um, of all the instruments in the band, his guitar playing is the most interesting. To me, he reminds me of um, what's his face from Coin, the astrophysicist Brian May. Brian May, yeah. Well, I, I think that both come up with compelling solos that complement a very good singer and add quite a bit. Um, I don't know if you take his guitar playing out of this band. There's a big hole. No, there's a huge Have hole. Have I mentioned the fact that if you took the flute out, there would <laughs> be a very big There's hole. a huge hole in terms of their identity. <laughs> I can understand if you don't like the flute, but it's not toll without the flute. So I, But I agree with you. It's not toll without Martin Barr either. And, uh, and Aqualung's toll, and there's no flute. I agree. You just said that. It's all 43 years this guy was in that band, and it, he is, is equally as important to the sound of that You're band. You're talking about Barr yeah. now. Yeah. Martin Barr, as, yeah. as Ian Anderson is. I, I think that this is going to be an interesting album to talk about, because unlike almost any album we've talked about, I think we're... I think we got to not just talk about the music, but we got to talk about what the songs are about, because it's compelling. Yeah. I This song confuses me, because Ian Anderson in multiple interviews says it's a sympathetic reading of a homeless person. 
I don't know how sympathetic the first four lines no are. Way. They sound awful. They paint I, the guy as a shabby you know, unless you, yeah, unless you look at it as that's how people look that's at it. That's what I thought. Maybe yeah. that's the case. That's how I, people I, look at it. I am um, on the outside of this from YouTube. I think that it's extremely sympathetic. And he is um, seeing himself in this guy. He's not looking over there saying, that guy, and there's a big fat line between me and that guy. Huh. I think he sees their their simpatico. Whatever yeah. you say there, except for the grace of God, go yeah, up. Yeah, no, I think and there is some of that going on. His picture is that's, superimposed over the uh, picture that his wife took, isn't it? No, that's not him. That's one of the things he hates about the album cover is that people <laughs> it think like it's him, him but it's like not. Him. We'll get into that a little bit later. Well, but I, th I think you're right about the part where it sounds like he's singing through a megaphone. That part is very sympathetic because yeah. it talks about, but the, the some sticking cold. The, and, yeah. Um, yeah, that whole part is very sympathetic. Going down to a bog to warm your feet. By the way, you guys know what a bog is, and like where peat moss is and no, stuff. It's a bat. It's a bathroom. It's a British bathroom. Oh, do you know what a dog end is? Because he bends <laughs> well, to take a, a dog cigarette. end. It's I know a that. Yes. Yeah. I'm not so. rich like you guys. I have to smoke the yeah, dog ends every now and then. <laughs> um, but that part is sympathetic. But the part where it begins with you know um, where he talks about you know, eyeing little girls with bad intent, that's, to me, not a very sympathetic line. No. So I think JM might be on to something in that that part, the da-da-da-da-da-da, yeah. is the, the world... Judgment. Well, I mean, the that's one of the... Of the I mean, that, okay, and so this is the... I have to say, it's the first time I've really ever paid attention to this song other than when I got the album, and I, even then I was didn't listen to it very much. But it is interesting that there is that hard beginning and then there's just acoustic guitar like guy sounded like it's almost like that's your subconscious speaking to you some I, mean, I, I, I this is where i was saying i'm starting to, I'm, this album has a little bit more uh depth to it than i thought it did yeah aqualung my friend <laughs> no don't, i got you don't you start away uneasy yeah i <laughs> yeah. got you i think you're i think there are parts of it they're sympathetic yeah but i mean what what is it don't start away from uneasy yeah it's only me yeah yeah and i see what you're saying about him superimposing himself on it yeah. uh, he's saying they're there but for the grace of god yeah i got you that makes yeah. sense um now that you I said that, i've never thought i'm saying you're this. right doug <laughs> We uh, say this it's actually been recorded. Let's, um, let's put this on a couple other podcasts. For some <laughs> so I, I've never heard the song and not thought that the uh, narrator was. Um, and I, I do agree that the the harshness is the world, the world looking the, at but it. But the yeah. narrator is the, is seeing something the else. The only thing that gives me a little pause with that is the way because aqualung makes a cameo in the next song and the way he's talked about yeah. in that song is doesn't it seems right back to the whole pedophile thing mm -hmm. but anyway well, I, don't, I don't think anyone is making an argument that he's not a pedophile oh well i but is it possible to have a uh be sympathetic for such a, a disgraced person i i think that i think that's what's happening so and i want to he's sympathetic for uh for um Cross-eyed Cross Mary, too, yeah. yeah. And I don't think you guys would disagree with me. This is a very British band. 
Oh yeah, very very British very band. British band. The <laughs> vocabulary they use, the musical instruments. Well, I, I told you earlier, I thought he sounded exactly like Alec Guinness. When well, he, <laughs> sing, he sings with this sort of Shakespearean, you know, the way. Yeah. That's, that's that's the other thing. I'm, he's I'm got to start with that question. Yeah. What the hell does he think he's doing? I don't understand. I mean, I I think he thinks he's a jester from uh, the Renaissance, <laughs> and he's he he belongs at some Renaissance fair. With Ren a whole Fair. bunch of dorks running around, uh, he thinks he's Pan. I don't know what's well, going so, on. Well, so so one of the things, and, and I forgot to mention this when I talked about Roy Harper. What this album is, and I think it's probably the finest version of what Toll was trying to do at the time, which is to take American blues and English folk music and smash them together into something completely unique. And that's what this album does better than almost any Toll album. Because there are Toll albums that are more folk than they are rock. And there are some like Thick as a Brick that are very proggy, that have folk, folk elements. Mm-hmm. This is the first album where they were able to kind of do that Reach really, balance. really, really, yeah. really well. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's not just traditional folk, which goes to your whole Renfair thing, but it's that folk distilled through Roy Harper, that modern kind of take that sensibility on folk that he was trying to it's, do as well. It's such a weird thing to decide. I, I, he's so weird that it doesn't matter that he's weird. It's, it's kind of like what Van Morrison does. <laughs> yeah. where nobody holds him to any kind of standard yeah, anymore because yeah, he's yeah. so far yeah. out doing. And yeah. oh, okay, it works. So you can do what you can wear your little hot pants and and do the <laughs> and all that kind of crap and say weird stuff on your albums, and we're all going to go with it. And it's the same with. He's so far out. He's, Ian Anderson's an oddball. Yeah, and, and it he pulls it off. He does, and um, and then he can recover because he's seventy two years old, walking around dressed like a normal guy, and everybody's going, "Oh yeah." yeah his hair know. is cut, his beard is trimmed. He no longer yeah. looks like the cover of Aqualung. Yeah, and uh, I, he's I bald. find that's he is that's probably the most compelling thing about this guy. Is you know, I'm always intrigued by where the hell did this come from? Yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, this is definitely a where the hell did this come from? No, yeah. it, well, the whole sound of the band is that way, and you know, like I said, I'm I'm into their. I own a lot of the stuff from their discography, and there are things that it, it's kind of all over the place, but there's a commonality to it in a weird way. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So anyway, back to this song. Uh, it's it's about a really pathetic person, yes. and uh, I I think they're talking about the ice in his beard yeah. and, mm-hmm. and the pain and he doesn't know what to do with his time Mm-mm. um it's just, he's just he's merely existing yeah. yeah until he hits into the next song then he has a little bit of okay well let's talk little, about little the fun. next song which is probably the second most popular song on the album you think This or Locomotive Breath? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Locomotive Breath. Locomotive yeah. Breath. But Cross-Eyed Mary is a big... When I saw them, and I so I saw them for the Crest of a Nave tour, and this is this Cross-Eyed Mary is what they started the show with. Well, and it's a, it's a strong um, it's a good opening. Song. I mean, so, I, the opening's for a song For a, an album that starts off with no flute, this song makes up for it. <laughs> and I like it. It's good. I, you know, I'm going to go with you, Tony. I, I do think it's an unusual use of the flute. It's It kind of undergrounds, uh, under, underlies the, the guitar part. The yeah. guitar parts, yeah. and 
Um, I like that. It's and this is the only song of the album that has our old favorite instrument, the Mellotron. On is it, it Mellotron? I was wondering. I was about to say, was there a Mellotron? Yeah, I was on this? worried because, that we weren't uh, going to have a Mellotron. There's a Mellotron on the first part of this song. I was wondering where that like, came from. It's, yeah, it's almost as if Ian Anderson and the band just got bored with it because yeah. everything else you hear that sounds like strings are strings. Are string, everything yeah. else that sounds like an odd instrument is whatever that odd instrument is. So the very first part of this song, the flute's playing over, there's a Mellotron underneath that, but that is it. That's it, huh? Yeah. The drumming on it is, first of all, amazing yeah. on it. And, yeah. and, and um, this is where I'm going to start talking about the production. This album suffers from what i think a lot of prog albums suffer from is murky production now i think i was listening to a remastered version of it because i it sounded it better. sounded a lot yeah, better Ian anderson would agree with you a hundred percent that this album when it started yeah. out was a piece of junk in terms of production he yeah. hates the production of it which is unusual because that island studios became pretty well they i think that it's because they were like the guinea pigs yeah yeah. I, they probably learned, hey, we got to get our act together. After this. <laughs> well, even Zeppelin's first albums I, sound murky to me. It, it wasn't until Led Zeppelin three where I think it actually started sounding uh, pretty good. But yeah, I read that they eventually became they they were the first studio in London to have a twenty four track recorder, yeah. and then they they were the then they were the first to have a forty eight track well, recorder. It's funny because when Ian Anderson talks about walking in the studio, he's like they had all the state of the art stuff. And we realized later on it was all wrong. <laughs> we were talking about the bass player, Jeffrey Hammond Hammond. Sometimes that bass just gets a little busy and it suffers from, that's another thing that Prague uh, music drives me completely insane about. It's like the, the, the drum, the, the bass player, it's obvious that he used to play guitar and he doesn't you're, quite know how to stay in the pocket. You're going to, um, you're going to, <laughs> discount one bassist in particular though right one prog bassist in particular, <laughs> who does not bother you because he's brilliant right uh he sometimes bothers me but yes i will i will you're, you're talking about getty lee i'm talking about getty lee, yeah of course. oh <laughs> sometimes i wish he would just stay in the pocket a little bit sometimes i wish paul mccartney would stay that, in the that pocket. pocket is big and rush it's a giant pocket <laughs> There's and, multiple pockets. Yeah, and it's a gi Jolly Green Giants pocket. <laughs> and Lord. all the elves get picked up and put I'm there. Sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry, audience, that I brought up Rush. Um, so so I, this is a very, very depressing song. It is. It is. It's, it's a very it's depressing a song. It's a seedy song. Yeah. This is a seedy, seedy, seedy song. Yeah. Even the whole thing, the whole thing just sounds dirty. And they do a good job of making it. And should we and say you need a you need a shower after you yeah. tell people what the song is yes, about? Yes, we have to. This song is about a teenage prostitute. Yeah, who is according to the lyrics the Robin Hood of Highgate. So what the what that implies is that she charges the rich guys and is a little less chargy for the poor guys. <laughs> yeah, the lyrics are the jackknife barber drops her off at school. <laughs> yeah. So, and we're not talking. I don't believe we're talking about someone who. I mean, she's underage, but she's not. She's she's in high school. Yeah. I would guess probably sixteen or seventeen. So. Again, not. But this is why I think when you talk about the sympathetic view of Aqualung in the first song, in this song, Aqualung's peering through the what is it through the um, through the gates or the railings or whatever, watching him on the playground. Yeah. So as you said, Doug, 
they're not ignoring the fact that this character yeah. has a, a, the affinity for young young girls. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, can we go to the next song? No, 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 no. <laughs> we gotta we gotta talk about Martin Barr's playing on this song. His guitar playing is remarkable on this, yeah. um, and uh, it, it it's difficult for me. First of all. I mean, he, he he does. He plays incredibly well. He keeps he's it's very in tune with the whole. I mean, he keeps in the spirit of the song, which is very difficult to do. One of the things I think that he does very well is he he is not a flashy player, but he yeah. is a good player. He is. He is. He's he's, he's like Robin Trower or some of those guys. Yeah, he here. is. And uh, that's another thing I've discovered about this band is that yeah, they do got some pretty tasty guitar licks in it that don't just make me go. Oh wow, you were showing off. That's so good. Thanks. So, I, I, the other thing he is, serves the song. He this, does. Uh, he does serve the song. song. The theme of the song is very much tied to the theme of the first song, which is, if I think you'd agree with me, Doug, maybe not about this song, but what the theme of the first song is. And I think the attempt here is to try to continue that, which is the idea of finding spirituality in all people. Yeah, even I a prostitute. It. They, they, uh, and I, I agree with the theme. I. The idea that um, that a prostitute has value, uh, you, you remember that Christ said the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of heaven before you, and he was he was speaking to the religious leaders of the day. So uh, it's not a, a new idea, and it, it it should be a universal idea. So, um, but the song is so difficult to think about a young girl in this situation, and, and, and that's where I. Yeah, I try not. Sometimes yeah. I try not to listen to the lyrics. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you because it's a good song musically. Yeah. I, a, if another, you're a lyrics guy, and the this way album, I know this album rips your guts. So another question is: um, any any real significance to the name of the character in the song? I never understood. I thought it was just a clever name. I just wonder. I, I don't know the answer. To that. I just wonder with the. I've never read anything. The second side, if the choice of well, Mary, Mary yeah. had any significance. I've never seen him say anything about it, so I don't know. But yeah. um, the last thing I want to say Could about this song. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Maybe cross-eyed Mary is somehow the opposite of Mary. Well, I, you know what it might be. There is a there is a um, there is an apocryphal interpretation of Mary Magdalene. From, at least from the Roman Catholic Church, it may not, it may be the same thing for the Church of E, which, Church of England, which is that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Uh, I don't. If that's, you, that's your Pope Gregory that I, made that I, up, and and it's not right. It's not true. Am I wrong, Doug? It's, it's there's no true. evidence in the Bible. There's no evidence. No so evidence. my point is, but maybe, Dan Brown also has this. Theory. Well, maybe though, maybe the point, maybe the point in calling her Mary has some link to that. I don't. It know. Might, I, yeah. I think that's probably likely. Because most people think Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. And she wasn't. She had seven demons in her, but yeah. nobody the, said she had a prostitute. The, uh, the, a other, prostitute. the other thing that I want to say before we move on is that um, Iron Maiden did a cover of this. I heard that. On the B-side of the Trooper single, and it is great. <laughs> no flute. No flute. No really? flute. It's great. So you, you've you've told me a number of things that make me want to listen to Iron Maiden for the first time <laughs> in my life. I've always uh, collectively put all of those bands, Metallica, Iron Maiden, whatever. Well, I've it, always put them in the category of Iron Vomit. Yeah, this is a and ignored them. <laughs> this next song is great. Cheap Day Return. 
Unpleasant platform Do your soft shoe shovel dance Brush away the cigarette ash That's falling down your pants And then you sadly wonder Does the nurse treat your old man The way she should She made your tea as for your offer You guys know what a cheap day return is? It's Not a ticket all. that you get on some British thing. It's a same-day return ticket on a train, and it's cheaper than going overnight. That's why it's called a cheap day return. So you buy the ticket, and you return the same day. Yeah, I've been to London like three times, and I've never understood any of this stuff. And the reason, uh, this song is called, the reason the song is called this is because Ian Anderson was sitting on a train station after visiting his very ill dad, yeah. and he wrote the lyrics to this. It's one line. The song is a minute, less than a minute well, and a half. It's pretty pretty. It's a beautiful song. Yeah. But uh, he's he's it's 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 autobiographical. If you and knowing that hearing the lyrics, it's it's pretty funny. He's like the nurse. You're hoping the nurse is treating your old man okay, mm-hmm. but she asks you for an autograph. So now you can't what a tell. laugh. You know, yeah. You can't um, tell if she's uh, putting on a show because you're uh, Ian Anderson. Or my, <laughs> my favorite, my favorite comment of his about the song was, he goes, "The song would have been longer, but the train showed up." Which I think is hilarious. <laughs> but it's a it's that a, sounds like old Ian Anderson, yeah, comment, yeah. not young Ian. Anderson. It's yeah. it's a beautiful song, yeah. and and it, it's got a chord, very subtle accordion in it. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you know, it's accordion if you've heard accordion, but it doesn't sound. It's not yeah. all over the place, yeah. and it's got is this flaco. Yeah, it's Flacco. <laughs> and it's got this great sort of, again, understated orchestration in it. Yeah, um, yeah. Stuff you, that you like, could have done with a Mellotron. But, but I, w- I thought that it was going to be like, all of a sudden, it's over. I was like, hey, I'm really getting into this song. And then, bam, yeah, it's over. It's so, it's, it's Yeah, the orchestration is very good. And it's a showcase for that guy's guitar playing. He is yeah. a fantastic acoustic yep. guitarist. I'll, I'll tell you what. Um, I forgot to mention this. Uh, Ian Anderson is... An exceptional singer. Yes. And he is an exceptional singer in, I would say, like a Broadway singer or something like that. He's not at all like any rock and roll singer that you can name. His his enunciation is crystal clear. Yeah. I don't, it's I almost like Shakespeare, a Shakespearean get, actor who's got was, a good voice. Yeah, I, I can't believe it wasn't forced into some Broadway musical because <laughs> he could handle the lead on any of those mm-hmm. things, and everybody in the audience would know exactly what he says. Yeah, he he enunciates over enunciates. Um, yeah. and he ought to be recording books now. He ought to just yes, be all yeah. time uh, uh, narrator of uh, <laughs> classical literature. I, I, I really. Think yeah. highly of his voice. Um, yeah, I do too. I, and I didn't say that like I meant to at the very beginning. No, it's yeah. it's a fantastic voice, and I think um, for people who dismiss this band because they don't like the music, they lump his voice in with it as well, which is a shame because he's got an amazing, yeah, amazing voice. Yeah, Ace. I bet if you said, "Okay, no more electronics." This band would survive more than other rock and roll bands. Well, they, yeah. you mean just acoustical instruments? Yeah. They've no, done, I mean his voice and acoustic. They've done albums of just they, like yeah. uh, songs from the wood is pretty much that yeah. way. I'm saying uh, minstrel in the gallery. You can hear him in the back of the the auditorium yeah. when yeah. these other guys would be up there going. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody yes. would be able to hear what they're saying. Okay, so this is a great song. Everybody likes it. Well, and it's, and it's, it's a bit of a reprieve from the la- the the on yeah. the It's nice that it's nice that he. <laughs> To me, this album's a lot of wandering around 
observing things. Yeah. It yeah. reminds me of Mark Knopfler. No, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, well, That's Mother next. Goose. Saw at least a hundred schoolgirls sobbing into handkerchiefs as one. I don't believe they knew I was a schoolboy. This is kind of an interesting song. I think it's the one song in this album that sounds the most Ren Fairy to me. I think, it, like uh, I th- have in my notes here, it sounds like it's like he's describing a medieval circus. Well, it's, it's, like, it's, is yeah, there it's, such a it's thing? Exactly what Doug said. It's a wandering. He's, he's song. wandering yeah. around this park, and he's it's he yeah. says it's a Sunday stroll, and he used to wander around this park, and he's just kind of surrealistically describing the the what he's seeing. Yeah, it's right? almost like he's walking in Hyde Park or something, and yeah. all of a sudden he's uh, like there's a circus going on with minstrels and uh, you know well, harlequins. He's saying and, that there's uh, elephants and lions and Piccadilly yeah. circus yeah. because that's what you say to foreigners when that's they right. go there. Mm-hmm. Do you guys know what the woodwind instrument? on this is going to say a recorder it's a recorder yeah Both which martin was... Barr and jeffrey hammond are playing the recorder little plastic yeah. recorders they got down the street on this no, and, and, and it's he, a nice little harmony recorder that, yeah it's probably the first <laughs> instrument most people play yeah, it, yeah. and he's, he's right about that i can remember sitting in music class in grade school playing picking out you know and how many kids lamb. are put up for adoption once they get this <laughs> Her parents just take them on. Now. Listen, you yeah. have not heard. Uh, my daughter is a fantastic violin player right now, but suffering through those early parts of that was. A yeah, problem. yeah. Is that Ian Anderson That's harmonizing? Martin, Barr. Martin Mark, Barr. No, I'm sorry. I apologize. Jeffrey Hammond is singing. He's singing that that the harmony part on this yeah. is fantastic. Jeffrey Hammond sings harmony, and I love the the Martin Barr power chords. That yeah, in. yeah, mean, and they're just subtle, they're subtle, but, but they're yeah, cool. and all of a sudden it starts like you're just in this medieval yeah. kind of circus sort of thing, and then all of a sudden the power chords and come in that kind of bring you back. But what I, is what is the percussion on this? It's a I think it's a Bodran, which is, it's a handheld That's drum. In Louisiana <laughs> it's like sausage rice and sausage sausage. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a drum that you play with this. Uh, Handle. I, I can't really explain what else it, but it. it Irish guys always do. Yeah, that. Irish guys well, play it, sense. and you you push sense. it. You and control it goes, the tone by ooh, by like how you. Chieftains always have that. Yeah, yeah. Like the little cute fat guy. But the chieftains. Yeah. When, when you got it's funny when you guys talk about how how dramatic his vocals are on songs. This song in particular, because it's such a kind of a mellow, subtle song. But he's like, oh, is it the part where he goes? uh uh, saw Mother Goose, um, so I turned her loose, and she was screaming. You know, it's just like uh, I keep saying. Oh, I got a yeah. question for you guys. Yes, sir. Uh, y'all are y'all are deep, very very intelligent people. Uh, why are the hundred schoolgirls all sobbing into their handkerchiefs? Handkerchiefs as one. That just sounds like something out of a, a fairy tale, like or a uh, one of those nursery rhyme kind of things. Is what it, I got it from. Well, I tell you why because they didn't know he was a schoolboy. Or uh, Long John Silver. He didn't play song. Somebody said they think it was uh, <laughs> when the Beatles broke up. Oh, uh, really? Because this was the year. Huh. 1970, uh, a month after my birth. Wondering <laughs> aloud. Will the years treat us well? As she floats in the kitchen. I'm tasting the smell
up. You it was. Wondering Aloud is our next song. What? And, uh, it's, oh, what a beautiful love. song. It's a beautiful it's a song. Beautiful. And to me, it sounds like if you threw this off of this album and put it on T for the Tillerman by Cat Stevens, I would not be, I wouldn't Except be able to tell you the difference. Singing. Yeah. Um, and but they're it's, both Brits. It's very, very romantic. Uh, it's yep. a beautiful picture, and they're going to be divorced in a year. Yeah. Anyway, I lo- I, this is one of my favorite songs on the album. It might be my favorite song on the album. Just to, it. But you're in love. <laughs> no, it's it's a beautiful song. Uh, you know what's funny is there are two different, three different versions of this song. Oh, really? There's wondering aloud, wondering again, and oh, wondering yeah. aloud again. And, and they keep getting longer, right? They get longer, they add little intricacies to it. But they're all That's essentially the divorce. They're all essentially love songs. <laughs> yeah. Wondering why the hell I ever married you. <laughs> well, yeah, they weren't I don't think they were married very long. Uh um, up to me, guys. Put the bottles back. Men's his glasses that are cracked. Well, that's one up to me. Hey. So, this song is disconcerting to me. It starts off with that bizarre sort of weird, and, and this is, a, I guess, a false start. Is this technically a false start jam? I couldn't. I didn't. I can't tell if it's a false start or. With that, he starts laughing well, at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. it's just as it's. When I was a kid, it always creeped me out. It is. It's a creepy beginning. It, it, well, first of all, I want to say, uh, "Wimpy Bar" is a real thing, by the way. That's a South African deal that got to England. No, it was a an American deal that got to England. It's a fast food joint. You're talking week. about oh, Wimpy Burger. That yeah. I read it was from South America, and I was thinking about the, uh, oh, the comic book where I gladly pay you That's today for having a first time I ever went to England. I went to a, got Wimpy a bar. Went to a Wimpy bar. Why? <laughs> funny, it started here and they're all gone here, but they're over here. <laughs> I thought it was well, you know, because there was one in Corpus. Right. There was one in Corpus Christi, Texas. You might well, be right, Doug. Well, we got the Whataburger that kicks everyone's ass. Um, this <laughs> is the song where the flute riff carries the song. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yep. Um, and the guitar occasionally plays along with it, but the flute is the thing that commands the attention to the song. Um, and you know what else is in the song, which is kind of funny? Sleigh bells. Yeah. <laughs> Are you listening? Nothing says rock Not and roll real, quite like sleigh bells. Like sleigh bells. This is an odd song. I don't really know what it's about, to be honest with you. Uh, other than maybe this guy is just saying, you know, there's nothing else. This is my choice, my decision. It's up to me. I I don't know. Doug, any thoughts? <clears throat> I don't. I don't have anything. Um, I I still think this. We're back to. A, the stream of consciousness yeah. wandering kind of deal. Well, I, this is a date, isn't it? A date? Uh, well, it starts off with, yeah, I guess, I don't and know. And it if ends it's a date with, whoa, you know, it's up to me. Yeah. It's up to me. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I don't know if it's a date or not. I know that there is a relationship sort of hinted at in it, but maybe so. It's you not tell very, me we've gone too far. It's not very polite if he leaves her in a wimpy bar. <laughs> I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know too I much about no idea bar. what this song So anyway, about. Um, 
an extraordinary move for this podcast. We're going to move away from something we don't know about. <laughs> and we're going to go, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something. So we flipped the record over. We're on and... side two, and the theme of side two is called My God. And then this first song on side two is called the seven minute glorious song called My God. Doug? (laughs) Well, how old was he when he made this record? I don't know, in his twenties. Exactly. And (laughs) I'm I'm right now touching the ceiling trying to get some power from the Holy Ghost to be good. But when I was in my 20s, I thought I was all that, and I thought I knew all that. And uh, for the second half of this album, it, it, it's extremely difficult because uh, this is his attack on organized religion. And um, basically, in, in my mind, uh, it's hackneyed. Can, Everybody attacks organized can I, religion Can I ask you a question real quick? Of course you can, Tony. Um, I'm such a did you did you go to public school or a church like a church organized school? I went to a god awful public school. So I went to Catholic schools. I've gone to Catholic schools my whole life. I I think this is a perspective of somebody who went to a Church of England school and had this stuff drilled in him in a way that maybe is a is a. And I'm not I'm not. Knocking. I think that's highly likely. I'm not knocking on what you're saying. I mean, but that pers- actually, he says this. That perspective of having religion drilled into you in that way is a different perspective than coming at it from 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 outside you know, of that. having having socialism and, drilled into you. And when <laughs> and when uh, and when he was going to school, it was likely very strict. Uh, he even talks about his biggest issue with with. Um, organized religion is their their at least at the time their willingness to incorporate and use fear to try to keep people in line with the dogma of the church so i I, look it's a rock and roll song okay it's not we're not talking about someone writing a book on theology right it's a rock and roll song let's give him that at least i know that's earlier when i was being so wonderful and um i I said stuff like this in my 20s. So, um, well, is is he saying anything that's really that off? Yeah. Um, I, under, I understand what he's saying. But he's saying that he understands and they don't. Oh, I, okay. If you're, if you're looking at it from that perspective, I could see why that would rub you the wrong way. The idea that somebody who's speaking from this higher level of things um, may not have all the answers, I don't know if you would necessarily see an issue with that. I can, and I'm, I don't want to speak for you. I can see where your issue is that he is claiming the authority of knowing more than them as a 20-year-old being a bit of a bone of contention. And, and it's, it's not him. I'm responding to the thousands and thousands of times I've heard this. Um, 
I, I made this example. I, I, I suggested this once. Um, when people want to learn how to make beer, yeah, and they find a recipe uh-huh. from the monks a uh-huh. long time ago, uh-huh. they take it really seriously uh-huh. and they follow it because they know those guys do <laughs> nothing they else. Yeah. They, that they're okay, but when it comes to religion, all of a sudden, everyone's fresh idea is correct. Well, and they can't learn anything from the ages. And that's, that's what I, I'm reacting I, I guess, uh, no, I got that. And I don't know if that's necessarily entirely the case here. I think, personally, I think a little bit of healthy doubt is always a good thing. Certainly. And when you doubt, go talk to people who know more than you. That's what I'm saying. Um, okay. Outside. Like, what if I start? Well, hey, can I just, as a Methodist preacher's kid, that <laughs> grew up in the church, uh, I really like the electric guitar. Well, I was going to say, if we can pull pull out of the themes of this song and just talk about it musically. And I, I really, I like, it It comes in at a really cool part, a part, and then the drums that are just behind the, it are unbelievable. So the drums, are, and and um, they're angry. They're angry. But Everything they're, about this song's angry, yeah, Doug. Very angry. <laughs> the flute solo is angry. The, the fruit yeah, is, he, he achieved angry flute, which yeah. it's almost like achieving angry but then there's banjo. That, you got that Renaissance choir almost thing. Well, I don't know where I that think, comes I from. Think I, this guess it, is, I think this is the one song. I mean, there are proggy elements throughout this album, but this is the one song you can pull out and say, this is a progressive rock song. Uh, yeah. That, this yeah. Is, this I is mean, it's got, it's got right. stops and starts. It's, it's got the weird time, time signatures. signatures. This and, is a song that gives this album that reputation as being a progressive rock album. Yeah. Um, and this is a this is a pretty important song on this album. This, yes. this one got a lot of attention. I mean, yeah. it's it's basically announcing, it's almost like an overture announcing the theme for the second side. Well, yeah. uh, well, it is the name of the second side, and it fits in with the verse on the back of the album, which says, you know, yeah. I, I if I may read a bit of it, I've got my nineteen oh, yes. seventy. Mm-hmm. Seventy-one. Let me get my bucket. In the beginning, man created God, and in the image of man created him. <laughs> um, look, again, I'm not going to discount what you're saying, Doug, because I understand exactly what you're saying. It's a little annoying to have a rock and roll artist preach at you about something. I, a 20-year-old rock and roll. I, I, don't, I don't find this message that grating to me. When I was 13... Nobody is as sensitive to this crap as I am. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's true. When I was 13 and I pulled this out and listened to it for the first time, it it, it was, again, it seems so wrong for me to be listening to this as a 13-year-old Catholic boy. It was the wrong thing for me to be listening. I should not be listening to this album, especially this song and the next one. Yeah, yeah, I don't mind I don't mind him saying this. And this this is universal. This is why I can't watch television. I don't mind him saying this. What I mind is that I can't rebuke. I got you. You can't. You can't go up to him and say, "Hey, hey, buddy." And that's. I mean, that's a. That's a profound weakness. Right. You can't have like any footnotes in his song. That I can't. I can't respond. But that's. It's, it's actually, not web two. Yeah. That's. That's how I am, and uh, that's. That's why I like no, Facebook. I, I got you. But going back to it, man, the guitar on this song rocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. Let's move to the next one. Okay, I, I think it's the same problem. I, what I love about this song, I know you don't like it, it because, but what I love, we're talking about him forty three. A father high in heaven smile down upon your son. Yeah, was busy with his money. 
I love about this song is the way Ian Anderson describes it. He says, this is my blues for Jesus. I think that's just a great, great This way to- uh, One of the things I have in my notes is I, I remember when I was a kid, this was my favorite song on the album. Well, um, I just thought I could. I, this is like your uh, Eagles song that you like. Is yeah, this, yeah. Is this, is what, it, what am I trying to say, Jane? You have to help me. Um, the I Last can, Resort. Yeah, Last Resort. Can, can, yeah. can we all agree, regardless of what he's singing about, this is his best vocal performance? I think it's his album. best vocal performance. I think it's the, the band rocks he, on I, it. I, and, I, and it's, I, I can't ever hear his voice and not be but but the thing about this song in particular is he strips away all that over enunciation and that yeah. Shakespearean thing. Yeah. It's just him singing, and he's it's almost buried in the yeah, and and he's angry, and it comes through in a way that nothing else on this album does. It's not melodramatic. It's full of bile and sneering disdain, and mm-hmm. it's fantastic. And it's the funkiest bass part on the whole album. No, it's it's I, the one two bam bam punch on the second side. Yeah, unrelenting thematically, musically, it just uh, and I know again, Doug, I I understand your issues with it. I get it, but all right, moving on to the next song, which is James taking over. You know, <laughs> slipstream. It's another reprieve. And impress on God's way to your last time. As he hands you the bill and is spinning. We get bludgeoned over the head with two very moralistic tunes, and then we yeah. So the it, it, this is for like if if you want to get really wasted and try to walk and have a soundtrack to you walk in, you could almost put like it could be a well, soundtrack of a bunch of wasted people I, I walking want, down the street. I wonder what the concept is here because a slipstream is like when you you know, get behind, uh, case in point, you get behind, if you're on the highway, it's not, we don't call it here in the States, we call it, um, what do we call it? Draft. Draft, when you get behind a semi. It's on the side talking about religion. I'm not sure what the thought is here about being dragged behind kind of outside of your own volition. I I will say musically it's an interesting song, especially the way it fades out at the end with that Mm -hmm. dissident kind of orchestral up and down, you know. The short songs on this album are kind of the ones I find most intriguing. Well, and those right. are the ones that are the most, again, not to throw this guy's name out, but if you don't know Roy Harper, you need to go out and yeah. check out his albums. They're the ones influenced by Roy Harper. The guy was a genius, and Ian Anderson is channeling him in these in these uh, smaller acoustic songs. Yeah. All right. Now we have a monster. We do have a monster. We, we a have monster. we have been playing with small tunes with a paragraph or two, and then uh, we're we're at a monster in terms of radio play, and we're at a monster in terms of sounds. We're at, this is the encore song that he leaves this out of his regular uh, 1972. He's been playing this as an encore so every show. Really, everybody goes nuts, and if. If anyone says that this isn't good live music, <laughs> that, that person is a liar. Yeah. Well, in the shuffling madness of the locomotive brand, runs the all time loser. And long and true his dad. Oh, it feels a test and scraping. 
you, you, I think, heard the same interview I did, where he, the guy talks, where he tells how the how the song was constructed. Uh, he was concerned about not getting his point across to the band about what he wanted to play, so he put down a click track, and then he put a couple of rhythm guitars in, and then people overlaid on it. And the interviewer says, "Oh, that's amazing because that sounds like a song you just walk on on stage and play live." And he goes, "Well, that's good because that's what we've been doing for the past fourteen years." <laughs> yeah, but um, <laughs> nobody. Knew what it was going to sound like yeah. until they heard it. Well, so the way it starts off, he knew what it was going to sound like. The way he says that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he might not. Have <laughs> I don't understand where it goes. But opening piano. Riff? Well, that was added on afterwards. I'm sure, but uh, so, yeah. No, but is. It's, this is uh, locomotive breath. I don't know. Oh yeah, we didn't that. mention locomotive and, breath. You're um, right. The this uh, song is supposed to sound like a runaway train. And it does. And it absolutely accomplishes that. <laughs> what is that going, again, as a non-musician, what is that going on with that, that weird like guitar? It's like the mute, strings are muted. Yeah, the strings are muted. Yeah, he's doing a lot of muted strings. And you press the strings down all the way yeah. and you get that sound. But yeah. there's something and else the, in the background, too. The flute's too. doing, the flute's doing well, some weird-ass... However you mute a flute, it's the doing it. best flute solo on the He's album. Do, it's a pretty cool flute solo, I'll give you that. And, and, and it's, it's, got that, it's, that, it's got that spit kind of that, thing going that on. scat going on where it's like, yeah, yeah, but in yeah. between the, the spit pipe. I love it. I in love between, it. yeah, I got to admit, in between, that's that's the... Like I said, this I'm not a flute guy. the most effective use of his strange flute playing. Yeah. It's awesome. And it's good. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. It, it's speedy. Uh, and it's, this is one of the songs where I, anybody that takes credit for this, I would say no. <laughs> this came from somewhere else. This yeah. came from the beyond, and it worked fantastically. You were the you were the conductor. The catalyst. You were the yeah. You were the, or not the catalyst, conduit, but the conduit. Conduit. Yeah. Of yeah. This, and uh, but. Uh, I think this is. Oh, the drums I'm, I'm are all, amazing. I'm all on it. torn up about the song because it was clearly my favorite song until, on the album until, until I found out what he thinks it's about. Yeah, I I agree with Doug. This Ian Anderson says this song is about population growth. Although Doug, I will say it's not necessarily. He doesn't necessarily say it. Uh, of course, I don't know how when you say a song is about popula population growth that it's not done in a negative connotation. He says when he talks about it that it's just the demands put upon society as a result of population growth. Well, I, d I don't mind that it's about that because in, in the 70, it was reasonable to think that the world was going to have a huge problem with the projected population growth. Yeah. Nobody could anticipate the, the changes that um, occurred that have actually made poverty go down Despite yeah. the fact that there's so many more people, uh, I, that's not my problem. My problem is I think this song is brilliant about something else. I, I'm and, the same way, <laughs> and that's not what he was writing about. <laughs> what do you think it's about? Because we talked about this a little bit before the show about what my interpretation is, and you mentioned yours, but you didn't yeah. go into detail, and I want to hear about I, it. I think it is a brilliant song, using words very efficiently to describe. A man in the second half of life hurtling towards death, watching his family come hmm. apart, um, watching uh, his wife betray him, uh. watching himself without any control over his own actions and his own family. So, sort of a predestination type of thing? 
it's not predestination. These these he probably is responsible, just like Aqualung, for putting all these things in motion. And he reaches for Gideon's Bible, and um, uh, and finds reprieve there. It's it's too late. Um, I, I, I'm just so impressed with my impression with my interpretation. It's so it's so depressing. Well, where does Charlie come from? I. I don't know Charlie. See, I Charlie doesn't make sense my, in any. Charlie makes sense in my interpretation. I always thought this song was about unwavering devotion to religious dogma, and Charlie, in that sense, and Charlie's the one that stole the handle, but the train it won't stop going, no way to slow down. Charlie, in my interpretation, is Darwin. So Darwin steals the handle, but the, the, but the religious dogma yeah. people—that's good. That's good. Still good. moving forward, we're both wrong, according yeah. to Ian Anderson. But I, I, I think he's maybe. wrong. <laughs> and, 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 you know, Charlie, I want, the only thing I could make of Charlie was Vietnam. And maybe this guy's a veteran that came uh, out of Vietnam. And, I don't think and, the Brits called them Charlie. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> it doesn't. And, and music, it's a is good sub- song. music is subjective, right? It doesn't matter what well, he says. Well, the guy meant something, and yeah, he but, didn't mean what I mean. So. I gotcha. Yeah. Anyway. But it doesn't make sense in the... Here's where I think he's shooting a bunch of smoke out of his rear end. It doesn't make sense to be singing about population growth on a side that is dedicated to or is, is has a theme of of organized religion and this man's unless, contempt yeah. for it. Unless yeah. it's he's angry at you papists for not letting anybody <laughs> wear a raincoat. <laughs> I, don't, I see what you're saying, and we, we do rely a lot about why we talk about these albums because they're meant to be listened to as a whole mm-hmm. they have a theme to them i don't think that necessarily takes away from the impact of your interpretation on this song or mine listening to it and discounting ian anderson's dumb interpretation of the lines <laughs> he could have been so brilliant yeah he would just call us first before that's right talk what's to the anybody? song about doug well it's about a man in the second part it was like oh brilliant i'll put, I'll put that down yeah, I, I God, think... he stole the handle and the train. It won't slow down. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's so good. Yeah. It's, um, anyway, nobody can... If anyone says they listened to this and didn't like it, they're a bad person. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's one of their best songs. It is one of their best songs. And, and it's and a reason why they save it. it for the encore. I like it better than Aqualung. I oh, like I it too. better than Thick into the, as a Brick. I like it. I, I think everyone should uh, watch watch a live version of him doing this. And it will, yeah. it will tell you everything you need to know yeah. about this band. Yeah. That's <clears throat> a good one. All right. Next we have... Uh, wind, wind Up. Uh, wind Up. Song. I do too. I think it's funny because the name of it's obviously an allusion to God not having to be wound up on Sunday. But I also think it's a bit of the song's a bit of a wind up because it starts off very slowly yeah, yeah. and builds up to that oh, yeah. little crescendo part. Um, again, with my thought about the last song, I think this one's also about blindly following church doctrine um, and moving to try to find your own path to salvation. 
Yeah. I mean, if you look at the kind of, to me, the heart of the song is the, I asked, I asked God this question, and by way of firm mm-hmm. reply, he said, I'm not the kind you have to wind up on Sundays. How dare you tell me that I'm my father's son when that was just an accident of birth? He's talking about forging his own direction to try to understand this stuff. I, In lieu of what I thought about locomotive breath, I'm disappointed that it's about population growth because I think this song feeds into that so well, but what do I know? I, I think it's so funny he thinks God's the one that needs to get wound up on Sunday. <laughs> well, he doesn't. He's not the kind that gets wound up on well, Sunday. He's suggesting that someone does. And- he's saying that the organized religion people and I and so as a Catholic I understand this because we have this understand we have this weird thing where people will go to church on Sunday and then act like complete ass. <laughs> can I say that on this or not? Well, I can as persons on the uh, for the rest of the week and so you go to church on sunday and you act like a great christian or whatever and then you leave and you're a jerk to everybody else so you're winding them up on sunday you wind them up you let him go and then the rest of the week it's nothing i get that i get that we don't have in the anglican community (laughs) um the bloody church of england as ian anderson says and my god I, i i just think it's funny because when i go to church just to wind me up i'm no, Perfectly I know that, but that's that God's. But that's not doesn't need a winding. His point is, there's all these guys that ta- I, are I talking. I know what his point. Well, needs to creep in, and there's here. also that theme about use use of fear because there's that. Um, uh, <clears throat> I'd rather look around me, compose a better song, because that's the honest measure of my worth. In your pomp and all your glory, you're a poorer man than me. As you lick the boots of death, born out of fear. That's he's talking about that use of fear to keep people in line, and I think that is a absolutely a fun or a, a reasonable critique of organized religion yeah tony you yeah. seem to love this album i do doug um but separate yourself from your feelings for just a moment and okay. be a cold hard critic okay what would you give this album uh, on a critic critic scale i'd give it a 4.5 I think the musicianship on it is fantastic. Uh, even the bass, which was relearned as we described earlier, um, Ian Anderson's—it's uh, the first album of theirs that incorporates that acoustic side of things and does it in a way that I love because I'm also a huge Roy Harper fan. I would give it a, a definitely a four point five. Four point five, yes, sir. Despite the bass, which doesn't matter, <laughs> um, and is your personal love for the album four point eight. Four point eight. Yeah, Jonathan J M Rowe, our extraordinarily humble producer with uh, shelves and shelves of <laughs> papers and files Sellers. to be humble about. Yes. Uh, as a critic, as a as a cold hearted as a cold hearted critic. critic, as a cold hearted critic, I'm going to give it a three point five. That is cold hearted. Now and critical, I don't think that there's any. He, it's, I don't think he didn't succeed at anything that he wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and I don't. The uh, overall, like you were mentioning, the mus- musicianship is really good. Ian Anderson's vocals are amazing. Um, and in the Prague Oeuvre, I think it's one of the best. Prague albums or art rock, however you want to call well, it. Well, he wouldn't call it Prague. Okay, but in in that in that he wouldn't, ooh, he wouldn't call it a concept album. He yeah. might not even call it an album. <laughs> <laughs> I 
You might even even call. I it. think it. I think it would probably rate higher, but I'm just talking about like a stuff. Yeah, like yeah, if yeah. I'm looking at the Rolling Stone record guide, I would you're say one of those like, snooty critics that doesn't like this kind of music. <laughs> I got you. Um, that also said, uh, I am a little surprised at how much I like this album. Woo! I really did not. I was not. I was looking dreading it. To it. I was. I got to admit, I was dreading it, and. Um, but listening to it the the first time I put it back on for the first time in probably what thirty five years or yeah. so, um, I, I was very much I can't enjoyed even it. Believe you're that old. <laughs> um, so as it, on a personal, like, will I listen to it again? I probably won't listen to the whole album. You'll listen but, to parts, but I will listen to. I'll definitely listen to Locomotive uh, you, you Breath just, again. You just you realize you just went against everything this podcast stands for. <laughs> We should censure him. All right. I guess the best way to put it is, it, it, put it is, if somebody put it on at a hunting trip or something, I would not. <laughs> no be, one's going to uh, put this on. <laughs> someone trip. put this on at a makeout party. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I will probably every once in a if it came if it sh- if it came through my shuffle of albums on I would not Turn fast forward. I would not fast so, forward. So what's it. your rating? Long about. I'm going to give it a three point zero. Uh, Which one is this? You, this is this is him. This is mine. Critic this three point five. Listening to it three point zero. Oh wow! I didn't expect to outdo uh, Jam as as a critic without a heart. I would give it four or five. That's what I gave it, Doug. I know it. I um, I appreciate the originality. And I appreciate. Uh, I, I think he writes good lyrics. I think he is a supreme singer, and I think he's got a great guitar player. And uh, his spit pipe is entertaining. <laughs> I think um, that's how it's listed on the album. Guitar, vocals, spit pipe. Uh, as a... Uh, I am on one foot right now. As a... He actually is. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen. As a, uh, a human... With feelings and cares, I I'd still give it a four. Uh, there's too much power and energy in this album to ignore it, and uh, I I will listen to it again. And uh, enjoyed I've been enjoyed being forced into paying very close attention to it. Yes, yeah, and I think I have a respect for Ian Anderson that uh, I always assumed might be there, but yeah. Now, now it's there. Now, if he were 20, I don't think I would have well, it. But as a 72 or whatever he is, I uh, I really have a... And, and you know how we are in the United States. When people talk like that, we think they're smarter and better than us because we only see it on PBS. So, you know, there's a little bit of that. Uh, Tony. Yeah. You got something from the kids tonight? Uh, yeah, Doug, um, it's not much of a stretch from what we've already done, but in doing a little research for this album, I came across a podcast that, uh, and we're not, we're not shy from recommending other podcasts. We we, we want you to find when you're on the top of the mountain, you can look down into the valley and say, Hey, look at that pretty house. Now, whether or not this is something I will admit, this is something you got to be a little bit of a fanboy for told to really get into. But it is fascinating. There is a podcast called Talk Told to Me. And there's, <laughs> and there's these two gentlemen that are going through the, the, the entire discography of this band 
song by song, and each episode is dedicated to a particular song. So they pick an album, and they go song Holy by God, song. Holy God, how many of Help! Uh-oh, we got an Amber Alert. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an Amber Alert. What's happening? <laughs> it looks like cross-eyed Mary. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I, should, I, I apologize for that. She's been abducted. That may be the cleverest thing we've ever done on this podcast. Hop along, my friend. Um, he's the prime suspect. Um, anyway. Uh, I listened to it. I'm a Toll fan. I enjoyed it. If you're interested in a little bit more of a deep dive into this band, even a little bit, <laughs> what would a lot look like? Uh, even even a particular album, um, I, it's worth. You know, it's interesting. These guys have a different perspective on things. Yeah. I I, um, I learned a few things listening to them. I don't agree with them on a lot of stuff, but it is uh, just like I don't necessarily agree with my two cohorts on this album from. Or this podcast from time to time. Tone's um, got to be wrong, Tony. No, Doug. We've established that. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. Talk told to me a weekly Jethro Told deep dive. Well, that sounds good, Tony. <laughs> we really appreciate that, and uh, all the all the dorks out there who us uh, over into all this prog crap. Also, uh, there's a ring endorsement, and. Uh, for all those of you who are playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons while you listen to this show, we appreciate you uh, giving us at least half of your attention. We could, we could not resist. We had to throw D&D into this. All right, so that's it for tonight's show. Next week, we'll be looking at an album by The Pretenders. Actually, their 1980 debut, The Pretenders. Got this. In pocket, gunpowder. I'm gonna use it. Intention. We're on Spotify. We're also on many of your favorite podcasting platforms and we're on twitter at tapping vinyl and you can email us at tapping vinyl at gmail.com and we're also on facebook for our host doug cooper our co-host tony schlegel and me your humble producer jonathan jm Rowe. this is vinyl tap where all the podcasts go to 11 and reminding you that there is no way to slow down.